Father, as we open your word this afternoon, we ask for the presence of your spirit. We ask that uh, you will open our minds and our hearts, that we might be able to understand and receive uh, what you have for us, and also that you will empower us to share this message with others. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer. We know that you have heard this prayer and that you will answer because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The Seventh-day Adventist Church holds some unique beliefs as compared with other Christian denominations. Probably the belief that stands out the most as being different from the Christian world is the idea of what we call the investigative judgment, the investigative pre-advent judgment. And basically, I'd like to begin by describing what the pre-advent investigative judgment is. Uh, basically, the God's judgment follows the same sequence as judgments or trials that take place in the United States of America today. In other words, judgment in the eyes of God is very similar to the idea of judgment that we have in the US and also in many other countries. And that view is that basically the judgment is composed of three stages. The judgment is composed of three stages. I want you to imagine a judgment scene in a court in the United States of America. You have an individual who was accused, you have the district attorney who is accusing the person, and you have the defense attorney who is defending the person who is accused. What is the first thing that is done in a trial in the court system of the United States? First of all, you have an investigation of the evidence. You examine everything that happened with relationship to the case. The district attorney presents his case against, the defense attorney presents his case in favor. And then after the investigation is finished, after all of the evidence has been seen by the jury, then the jury deliberates and the jury pronounces the verdict. So the first stage is the investigation. The second point is the verdict or the sentence. And then, based on the sentence, comes the time when the sentence is to be executed. In other words, where, where the judgment is implemented and the person is either punished or the person is rewarded. And so basically you have three stages to the judgment. Stage number one, an investigation of the evidence. Number two, the judgment verdict or sentence. And number three, the implementation of the sentence. Now, most Christian denominations, their concept of the judgment is very limited because they don't really believe that there's going to be an investigation of each person's case and that a verdict will be given in a heavenly judgment before the second coming of Christ. You see, for most Christians, the judgment takes place when you die. If you were, if you were connected with Christ when you died, you go to heaven. If you were not connected with Christ when you died, you go to hell. And with some Christian denominations, uh, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, if you were half good, you go to purgatory. Or if you were not good enough, you go to purgatory for a while. So basically, the idea of judgment of the Christian world is that judgment takes place when a person dies. So there would be no uh, reason to have a judgment where you have an investigation of the evidence and then you have the sentencing before a heavenly jury and then finally an execution of the sentence because all of that takes place when a person dies. See, God knows if the individual didn't connect with Jesus, well, God knows he's going to send him to hell. And if the person was connected to Jesus, then God knows he's going to take that person to heaven. There's no need for a trial because God knows everything according to this point of view. But the Seventh-day Adventist Church believes that the judgment transpires in three stages. The first two stages occur in heaven. 
the last stage or the last uh, part of the judgment occurs on earth. Now what I want us to do is go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to look at the judgment scene there in Daniel chapter 7. And let me just mention that usually when we study Daniel 7, you know, we study all about the beasts. But somehow, I haven't found as much emphasis on the judgment scene of Daniel chapter 7. You know, we, we talk about the lion, and I don't think I even have to review that, the lion, which represents Babylon, the bear, which represents Medo-Persia, the leopard, Greece, the dragon beast, Rome, the ten horns, the divisions of Rome, the three horns that were uprooted are the Heroli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, and then the little horn, the papacy rules for 1260 years. You know, we're very well versed with that aspect of Daniel 7, but we don't dedicate as much time to study the judgment scene of Daniel 7. You see, after the little horn rules 1260 years, you have a judgment scene. And what I want us to do is look at that judgment scene so that we can see the three stages that we talked about. The three stages are not an invention by the Adventist church. The three stages are there found in Daniel chapter 7. So let's go to Daniel 7, and we're only going to read certain verses. We're not going to read all of the verses, uh, just enough to, to get uh, the, the idea. Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. The little horn is ruled 1260 years. Those years end in 1798, so what we're going to read now happens sometime after 1798. It says there, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days, who is the Ancient of Days? God what? God the Father, very well. Where does God the Father live? In heaven. We pray our Father which art? In heaven. So this is taking place where? In heaven, very important. And the Ancient of Days was seated. So if he was seated, was he seated there before? No, he must have been some other place before because it says that he was seated. Uh, let's continue reading. It'll become clearer. So it says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Who are those? The angels. Where do the angels live? In heaven. So where is this taking place? In heaven. The Ancient of Days is sitting in heaven, some place. Actually, the most holy place. And then the last part of verse 10 says, The court was seated and the books were opened. Where does the court sit? In heaven. What is opened? The books. Why are the books opened? What's going to be examined now? The record, the evidence. Yes. Because all of God's people are, are accused by Satan. And so now God is, is going to court and he's going to lay out all of the evidence to the view of the entire universe. The records are going to be examined. This is the examination stage of the judgment. It continues saying, and now we're going to read verse 13 and verse 14. I want you to visualize this. The Father, you know, He moves. He comes into the most holy place. He sits on His throne. The books for the judgment are open. Now the evidence is going to be examined. And then in verse 13, we find another person that comes into the picture. Notice verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Who would that be? Jesus, he constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man. It says, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. What are the clouds? The angels. Where is this Son of Man coming to? Is he coming to the earth? No, he's not coming to the earth. Notice. It says there, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to where? To the Ancient of Days. Where is the Ancient of Days? In the vision? In heaven, on his throne in heaven, right? 
So where does the Son of Man go to? Does he come to the earth or does he go with the angels to where the Father was? To where the Father was. Very, very important. So it says, He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him. Who brought him? The angels. Very well. And they brought him near before him. That is near before the Father. Now the question is, why does Jesus go to where the Father went in heaven? What is the, the purpose of Jesus going to where his Father was? Verse 14 has the answer. Then to him, to whom? To Jesus. To him was given. Who gave it to him? The angels? No, no. The Father is going to give something to Jesus as a result of the books being open. It says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why does Jesus go to where the Father went? To receive what? To receive his kingdom. It continues saying that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now a little bit later on in the chapter... Uh, in verse 18, we find an amplification of what we just read in Daniel 7 and verses uh, 9 and 10 and 13 and 14. Notice verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Now wait a minute. We, uh, we just read that who receives the kingdom? Jesus receives the kingdom. Now it says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Once again, the idea of the judgment leads to Jesus possessing the kingdom and the saints of Jesus possessing the kingdom. Now let's go to verses 21 and 22. I was watching and the same horn, this is the little horn, was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. Came where? To earth? No, until he came to the place where he's going to do the judgment in heaven. So it says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the ancient of days came. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. Where is the judgment given in favor of the saints of the Most High? In heaven. So where is the verdict pronounced? The verdict is pronounced in heaven. And so it says, um, Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And now notice, notice the last part of the verse. It says, And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Do you see the three stages there? First of all, the judgment sits, the books are open. That's the examination. Secondly, it says that a judgment is given in favor of the saints of the Most High. Where? Based on the examination of the evidence. And then it says that the time came for the saints to actually possess the kingdom. Where do they possess the kingdom? No, they don't possess the kingdom in heaven. The meek shall inherit the earth. That's right. So the final stage, the actual possess, possessing of the kingdom, takes place where? It takes place on earth. So Jesus goes to get his kingdom in the investigation. What is the kingdom? We need to, that's a very important question that we need to answer. What is the kingdom that Jesus goes to the Father to receive? We usually think of the kingdom in territorial terms. You know, for example, we talk about the United Kingdom. What, what comes to your mind when we say the United Kingdom? Well, you say, you know, that means Wales and Ireland and Scotland and uh, England. You know, that's the, what we call Great Britain. You know, that is the, the United Kingdom. But really in the Bible, the kingdom is not the territory. The kingdom are the subjects that belong to the kingdom. The kingdom are the people, in other words. Let me read you this statement from Ellen White. It's found in Early Writings, page 280. She understood this, 
that Jesus goes to the Father to receive the kingdom. In other words, Jesus goes to the Father to examine the evidence to, to discover or, or to reveal, because he, he already knows, to reveal who is a subject of his kingdom, who is a true subject of his kingdom. Here's the statement, early writings 280. Every case had been decided for life or death. This is, this is uh, when probation closes. While Jesus had been ministering in the sanctuary, the judgment had been going on for the righteous dead and then for the righteous living. So you have in heaven, the judgment is, is going on. First of all, for the righteous dead, began with Adam back in 1844, and she says it ends with the living. And then she says this, Christ had received his kingdom, having made the atonement for his people and blotted out their sins. And then she explains what it means that Christ had received his kingdom. She states, the subjects of the kingdom were made up. So what is the kingdom? The kingdom are the people that compose the kingdom. That is the kingdom. It's not the territory. It's not, the kingdom isn't the earth. The kingdom are all of the true subjects of Christ. Now, let's take a look at why the investigation has to take place. Are there many people who profess the name of Christ who are not true followers of Jesus? Are there many people who go to church that uh, are actually eventually going to be lost? Yes, probably the majority is what the Bible says. Now, is it necessary then to, for God to do a work of separation, investigation, to see who was the real deal and who wasn't? Absolutely. Let me ask you, is there wheat and are there tares in the church? So must a separation take place? Must there be an investigation to see who's a tare and who's, who's wheat? Of course. Let me ask you, are there good and bad fish in the church? Yeah, see, the, the, we fish... We're fishers of men. And you not only fish good fish, you also fish some bad fish. And they all, they're all put in the boat. But when you get to the shore, the separation is done between the good and the bad fish in the parable of the fishing expedition. Do you have wise and foolish virgins in the church? Sure you do. Do you have people who have the wedding garment and those who don't? Yes. Do you have people who say, Lord, Lord, and perform miracles and cast out demons and prophesy in the name of Jesus, where Jesus is going to say, I never knew you? Absolutely. Are there in the church individuals who are clothed as sheep, but they're really ravenous wolves? Uh, the Bible says yes. Are there individuals in the church who have the appearance of godliness, but only the appearance? Yes. Are there people in the church, are there ministers in the church that disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness? The Apostle Paul says yes. So in the church you have multitudes of individuals who all claim Jesus, but all are not sincere followers of Jesus. So the purpose of the heavenly investigative judgment is to reveal to the universe who truly repented of sin who truly confessed their sins, who truly had faith in Jesus, which is shown in the life. Because what shows that you're truly sorry is uh, the fact that your life changes. In other words, you don't do what you used to do. Faith produces work. Genuine faith produces works. You read Hebrews chapter 11, all of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 are... Uh, doing something. The heroes in chapter 11 of Hebrews are not thinking something, they're not believing something, they're doing something. By faith Noah built. By faith Abel offered. By faith Abraham left not knowing where he was going. By faith Abraham sacrificed his son. So in Hebrews 11 the people are doing something because what they do shows that they have real faith. So the purpose of the judgment is to reveal who truly repented, who truly confessed their sins, not admitted their sins, but confessed their sins, who truly trusted in Jesus, which is shown in the life. 
It's to separate, in other words, the righteous and the unrighteous from those who profess the name of Jesus. By the way, only those individuals who profess to follow Jesus are examined in the pre-advent judgment. People who did not, uh, did not receive Jesus or accept Jesus, those individuals are analyzed during the thousand years and after the thousand years. But the only ones examined before the second coming to determine or to reveal who was a true believer and who wasn't a true believer are those who claimed to believe in Jesus. You see, the kingdom of Jesus has to be made up before Jesus comes to claim his kingdom. It needs to be revealed. Every subject of his kingdom needs to be made up. And when every subject has been examined and it's been revealed, who is truly a subject of his kingdom, then he can close the door of probation because his kingdom is made up. Are you following me? But this is not the primary focus of what I, what I want to talk about. This is only the, the preparation uh, for, for what we really want to take a look at. We want to look at what happens after the examination is finished, after the verdict has been given, after there has been a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous, the kingdom of Jesus is made up because it's been revealed to the universe in the investigation who is a true subject of his kingdom. At that time, Jesus pronounces a verdict in favor of his saints. His saints are still on the earth. But the verdict is given in heaven based on the investigation of the evidence. Now what happens after the verdict is pronounced? Immediately after the verdict is pronounced is the close of probation. Because nobody's going to change sides. The kingdom is made up. There's not going to be anyone added to the kingdom. There's not going to be anyone subtracted from the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is made up and the kingdom of Satan is made up. The followers of Jesus have the seal of God, those who are alive, and the followers of Satan have the mark of the beast. And there's not going to be any changing sides. And so probation closes. That's the first point that I want us to notice. After the investigation and the verdict has been given, you have the close of probation. And then when probation closes, after this you have a terrible time of trouble. This view is unique also of the Adventist church. Because most Christians believe that they're going to be raptured away before the tribulation. But the Adventist church believes that the kingdom of Christ is made up before the close of probation, and then God's people will go through a severe time of trouble even after the kingdom of Jesus is made up. And so then you have, you have the close of probation, then you have the time of trouble, which is a period, and after the time of trouble, then you have the second coming of Jesus to actually give the reward to God's people that had already been pronounced in the verdict based on the investigation that was made in heaven. Right, this clear? This is fundamental Seventh-day Adventism. Now what we want to do is we want to take a look at several biblical pictures of what happens when probation closes. Remember, three stages we're going to look at. The close of probation, the time of trouble, and the deliverance of God's people when they actually receive the kingdom. Now, the first example that I want to give from the Bible is one that I gave here in 2014. When, uh, when I was here at Heartland Camp Meeting the last time. Um, I'm going to go through it quickly. Many of you probably were not here. So, um, uh, you know, for you, this might be new. For people who were here, well, it's good to review, isn't it? The pattern we find in the book of Genesis, in the story of the flood. This is the fundamental pattern of every other example that we're going to look at concerning the time of trouble. First thing that I would like to mention is that before the flood, Noah preached a powerful judgment hour message. How do we know that it was a judgment hour message? Two reasons. Number one, in Genesis 6 it says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. That word strive, believe it or not, in almost every single reference in the Old Testament is translated to judge or judgment. So in other words, when Noah is preaching, his message 
is dividing the world into two groups. It's a judgment hour message. What does a judgment hour do? Message do. It divides the whole world into two groups. Those who receive the message and those who reject the message. By the way, was his message accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit? Sure. My spirit shall not always strive with man. So his preaching goes along with the Holy Spirit. Did everybody decide in favor or against during the period of probation? Absolutely. There were only two groups. Those who entered the ark and those who stayed outside the ark. After Noah had finished preaching his message, the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the earth. The Holy Spirit no longer strove with human beings. Because God said, my spirit is going to strive 120 years. That's probation. When the 120 years come to an end, the Holy Spirit no longer accompanies the message of Noah because the preaching of the gospel is finished. Every case has been decided. And then you have the closing of the door. Notice Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16. Genesis 7 verse 16. It says, so those that, speaking about the animals, so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So the door closes. Has every case been decided when the door closes? Yes. How many sides are there? Two or three? Two sides. Those inside and those outside. When were those outside lost? When the door closed or when it started to rain? When the door closed. But now here comes the interesting point. The door closes, and how many days pass before it actually begins to rain? Seven days pass before it begins to rain. Have you ever wondered why God kept Noah and his family in that great big transatlantic ship, because it was huge, for a period of seven days? I believe it was because God wanted to reveal something very fundamental about the end time. You see, what happened with Noah and his family during that period? Ellen White states that their faith was severely tested. For each day that went by, no rain, no rain, no rain. And she says that each day that passed, the violence of those who were outside increased. Here you have a picture of the time of trouble, where the faith of God's people will be tested, and the wicked will become more and more daring against God's people during that period. So you have, first of all, the closing of the door, all cases decided. Then you have the time of trouble, the faith of Noah and his family tested, and those who refuse to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, more and more violent each day. And then, the last point is the destruction of the wicked and the actual saving of the righteous. That's the third stage. God's people are actually empirically saved based on the decision that they made beforehand. Now, Jesus used this story to speak about uh, what is going to happen at the end of time. Let's go to Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. It says there, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until, uh, two times the word until is used, until the day that Noah entered the ark. So the first until marks the moment when Noah entered the ark and the door closed. And then it says, and did not know who didn't know those that were outside, the wicked, they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. What didn't they know until the flood came and took them all away? That they were lost. Let me ask you, were they lost during the entire seven days? Did they know that they were lost? No. Is the same thing going to happen at the end of time? Jesus said, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
So Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, what happened in Noah's day, the door closed, there was a period of trouble, and then Noah and his family were delivered. That's going to happen at the end of time. The door is going to close, there's going to be a time of trouble where the faith of God's people will be tested, the wicked will become more and more violent, but then God's people will be delivered. Jesus spoke of this as the coming of the thief in the night, a midnight thief, Ellen White describes. You know, the coming of a thief has two stages. You say, really? No. It has only one stage. No, it has two stages. The first stage of the coming of this thief is when he comes to a person's house and the person is sleeping. The thief comes and finds the door unlocked because nobody's watching. You know, the, the, there was no preparation. And so the thief comes into the house and he steals everything. He can let, put his hands on anything, everything of value. And he leaves, and the people in the house are totally unaware that the thief has come. When do the people in the house discover that the thief has come? When they wake up in the morning, but then it's too late. So it is at the coming of the Son of Man. The door of probation will close. That's the coming of the thief. But the wicked will only know that the thief has come, that probation has closed, when Jesus is coming on the clouds, but then it is what? It is too late. Now, let's look at the common denominators that we find in the story of the flood. There are six common denominators that we're going to see in all of these stories. Number one, there's a faithful remnant. Who is the faithful remnant? Noah and his family. The remnant has enemies. Who are the enemies of the remnant? Those that are outside the ark. There's a time of trouble and anguish for the remnant. The seven days that they are inside the ark. Number four, the faith of the remnant is severely tested during this period. Number five, God delays to deliver his remnant. There's a delay. Don't forget that. And finally, God's remnant is delivered. Those are the six common denominators that we're going to find in all of these stories that we're going to take a look at. We're going to take a look at some of them this afternoon, and uh, then we're going to take a look at uh, the more significant ones uh, in our study tomorrow. Now let's go to Daniel 12 and verse 1. Daniel 12 and verse 1. And uh, look at this story. We already noticed uh, these common denominators in the flood story. Now we want to go to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, immediately before Daniel 12 verse 1, you have a power which is, which is called the king of the north. There's a lot of debate these days about who the king of the north is. And uh, I don't want to get involved in that debate right now. I believe the king of the north very clearly represents the papacy, represents the papal power. Uh, it's the same, you know, it's the last power that, that uh, rules on the earth before the second coming of Jesus. You know, it's the same as the little horn. It's the same as the beast. It's the same as the man of sin. The same as the abomination of desolation. The same as the harlot. The same as the Antichrist. Different names for the same system. The, the, the same as the little horn, yes. The king of the north is the papacy. And Daniel 11, 44 and 45 says that the king of the north goes out to destroy and annihilate many. In other words, he's going to persecute God's faithful people. And when he's about, uh, when he's about to launch his final persecution against God's people, uh, we find what happens in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. There are four points that I want us to notice in this verse, Daniel 12 and verse 1. By the way, the name Michael is used five times in Scripture. Four of those times refer to events of the past. This is the only time where Michael appears that is describing a future event. So it says here in Daniel 12 verse 1, At that time, that is when the king of the north goes out to destroy and annihilate many, when he has the intention of wiping out God's remnant people, Michael shall stand up. That's the second point that I want us to notice. When the king of the north goes out to try and destroy God's people, Michael is going to what? Stand up. What does that mean, Michael is going to stand up? Make 
Well, you know, you know uh, yes, the judgment is over at this point. The judgment comes to an end. Stand up refers to the close of probation. You say, how do you know that? Well, what you have to do is go to other verses that use the same expression. And in chapter 11, the first, uh, the first couple of verses of chapter 11, you have the identical expression, stand up. So let's see what stand up means. Daniel 11, verses 2 and 3. I'm reading from the King James Version, which, is, uh, which helps us because it's translated in the same way, the same expression. It says, And now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. What does that mean, three kings are going to yet stand up in Persia? That means that three kings are going to yet rule in Persia, right? Stand up means to begin to what? To rule. And it says, And the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, uh, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grisha. And a mighty king shall stand up and shall rule. So what does it mean to stand up? It means to begin to what? To rule. The identical expression of Daniel 12, verse 1. Notice another example in Daniel 8, uh, verse 22. Dan Daniel 8, 22, where it uses expressions, stand up. Speaking about the notable horn that the he-goat had on his head, which is broken, it says, now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his own power. What does that mean? Two king kingdoms will come up and stand up. It means three kingdoms are going to what? To rule. So what does it mean that Michael shall stand up? It means that he's going to begin to what? He's going to begin to rule. Why is he going to begin to rule? Because his kingdom is made up. And how was his kingdom made up? When was his kingdom made up? In the investigative judgment. Are you with me or not? So standing up is the same as the closing of the door in the story of, of, of the flood. Michael stands up when all the decisions are made. His kingdom is made up, so now he's going to stand up and he's going to begin to rule over his kingdom. So it says, when the king of the north goes out to destroy God's remnant, Michael is going to stand up, and what he's going to do? He's going to defend God's people, because it says, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and then notice the next event. There shall be a what? Hmm, interesting. Same, same sequence of events as the flood, only different terminology. So it says there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that, uh, even to that time. So there's a terrible time of trouble. But then notice what it says. And at that time, your people shall be what? Delivered. See, there you have the implementation of the verdict, right? Probation closes, the decision is made. God's people go through the terrible time of trouble. King of the North wants to destroy them. But then Jesus comes and he delivers. He actually empirically delivers his remnant. Now, who is delivered? The last part of verse uh, 1 is very important. It says, Then, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. When were they written in the book? When was it discovered that they were written in the book? In the judgment. There's an indirect reference here to the fact that these people were judged and their names were retained in the book. Let me read you a couple of statements from Ellen White. This, uh, this uh, is a very interesting um, statement. Actually, this is, um, I don't have the reference from the Spirit of Prophecy, but I'll, I'll give it to you tomorrow. Ellen White writes, Christ says to the overcomer, I will not blot, his, blot out his name of the book of life. The names of all those who have once given themselves to God are written in the book of life, and their characters are now passing in review before him. So everyone who has professed the name of Christ is written where? In the book. And what's happening now? a review or an investigation of each person who professes Christ is being made. Then, she writes, angels of God are weighing moral worth. They are watching the development of character in those now living to see, listen carefully now, to see 
if their names can be retained in the book of life. So are some names going to be deleted? Yeah, the tares are going to be deleted. The foolish virgins are going to be deleted. Those who don't have the garment are going to be deleted. Those who are not good fish are going to be deleted. Those who say, Lord, Lord, but disobey his will are going to be deleted. Those who have a form of godliness are going to be deleted. Those who appear to be sheep but they're wolves are going to be deleted. So are you seeing the elements here in Daniel 12 verse 1? The door closes, Jesus begins to rule because the investigation has revealed who his kingdom is. Then his people go through a severe time of trouble where the king of the north wants to wipe them out. During that time, Jesus protects them. Michael protects them. Nobody is going to die during that period. And then, at the end of this period, God's people are delivered. Everyone whose name was retained in the book when the investigation was made. So let's review our common denominators. Is there a faithful remnant in Daniel 12, verse 1? Yes. Does the remnant have enemies? Mm, the king of the north. Is there a terrible time of trouble for God's people? Yes. Does God delay to deliver them? Yeah, all during the time of trouble he delays in, in delivering them. Is their faith tested during this period? Yes, but are they finally delivered? So we find the same common denominators that we found in the story of the flood. Now let's take a look at another picture that we have. Um, the time of trouble has a special name. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Well, if it's the time of Jacob's trouble, where should we go to try and find out why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble? Well, uh, the reason what we, what we have to do is we have to go to the story of Jacob, right? That would be the best thing to do. And the story that we want to examine very quickly is in Genesis 32. Genesis chapter 32. Let me give you a little background. Just we'll read the, the key verses. Jacob spent 20 years at Laban's house. Laban was a nasty individual. One of the worst that you find in scripture. He was a conniving thief. And so Jacob spent 20 years of exile because he had lied to his father and stolen the birthright from his brother. And after 20 years, God told Jacob, now it's time to return to your land. So he returns to the land, and as he's um, on his journey, he hears that his brother Esau is coming with 400 men with the intention of destroying him. In fact, uh, in Genesis 27, verse 41, uh, we find Esau had said, I will find Jacob and I will kill him. This is after Jacob stole the birthright. And so he's coming with the intention of destroying Jacob. Jacob and his family are defenseless. They have no weapons. Esau was a warrior, according to Scripture, not Jacob. And so Jacob now fears that he and his family are going to be wiped out by his brother, who is his enemy. And so now he goes by the brook Jabbok, and he pours out his heart in prayer to God. You see... God had forgiven him 20 years earlier, but he was, not, he was not able to forgive himself. One of our biggest problems is that our unwillingness to accept God's forgiveness because we let our feelings get in the way. See, we should know that we're forgiven not because we feel it, but because God says so. Amen. And Jacob, you know, if he just accepted God... But, you know, when Jacob uh, went away from home, he had that dream of the ladder. God said the communion between you and heaven is still is still there. In fact, after he had the vision of the ladder, or the dream of the ladder, God said to Jacob, I'll be with you wherever you go, and I'll protect you. God had said, you know, it's, it's past, it's forgiven. But Jacob was not able to forgive himself. He feared that his sin that he had committed was so great that he could not claim God's protection. So he pours out his heart in prayer to God. He says, oh, give me the assurance of forgiveness. There by the brook Jabbok. And I want to read just a few verses, Genesis 32, verses 10 and 11. 
Here Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. And here comes the key word that we're going to find time and again. What is it? Deliver. Don't forget that word. It's in almost every passage that we're going to be studying. And we found it, of course, in, in, the, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. So it's, he says, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. So Jacob is saying, my sin was so great that I can't claim the protection of God. My family and I are both going to be destroyed. So he's pouring out his heart in prayer for the certainty of forgiveness and for the certainty that God will protect him. He's going through this severe anguish. And while he's going through this severe anguish in prayer, wanting to be certain that his sins have been forgiven so that he can be protected from his, his brother and the 400 men, a mysterious individual comes and lays hold of him, and a struggle begins. For the better part of the night, he struggles with this mysterious being. And as the sun is about to rise, this mysterious being says to him, let me go, for the sun is rising. Jacob at this point already knew that he was struggling with the angel of the Lord. He was actually struggling with Jesus Christ himself. He knew it. I mean, uh, this being simply touched his hip and it was disjointed. So he, he, he knew this was not a common, ordinary human being. And so uh, th this being says, let me go. And Jacob grabs onto him and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Give me the assurance that my sin is forgiven and that you're going to protect my family and me. And so once again, the being says, let me go. He said, no way, I won't let you go. He's struggling with, the, with this mysterious being. Then the mysterious being says to him, hey, what's your name? Jacob says, my name is Supplanter. Because that's what Jacob means, somebody who wants to supplant someone else, take somebody else's place. My name is Supplanter. And this mysterious being says to Jacob, your name will no longer be supp called Supplanter. He says, your name will now be called Israel. Prince of God, because you have struggled with God and with man, and you have overcome. You have gained the victory. And the Bible says that he blessed him there. And the interesting thing is that Jacob was delivered from the wrath of his brother. His brother came to him in peace. So he was delivered. His prayer was answered. But what was Jacob's anguish? The need to have the certainty of what? of the forgiveness of his sins so that he could claim the protection of God. Let's go to Genesis 32, 24 to 29 where you find this struggle described. Then Jacob was left alone and a man, notice, alone. He had nobody to lean on. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Now, who was this mysterious being? This mysterious being was the angel of the Lord. You say, how do we know that? Go with me to Hosea chapter 12 and verse 4. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 4. This uh, text is reminiscing about this experience in Genesis chapter 32. Hosea chapter 12 verse 4 tells us, Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. Who did Jacob seek favor from? From the angel. Let me ask you, was, did he prevail in his struggle with, with the angel of the Lord? Yes. By the way, what is the proper name of that angel? 
Michael, yes, the same Michael of Daniel 12 and verse 1. You say, how do we know? How do we know that Michael is really Jesus, that Michael is God? Because Jesus is God. We don't have to guess. Because Jacob gave that place a special name. He called that place Peniel. Two Hebrew words, pen, face, and el, God. In other words, he called that place the face of God. And he explained why he called the place of the struggle the face of God. In Genesis 32 and verse 30, it says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. And then he explains, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Who was that angel? It was God. Michael, a name that is given to Jesus before his incarnation in the New Testament. So let me ask you, do you have a faithful remnant in this story? Who is the remnant? Jacob. Do you have an enemy of the remnant that wants to destroy him? Yes. Does Jacob go through a severe time of trouble? Yes, he does. Does God delay to deliver him? Yes, all night. Was his faith severely tested? Yes. But was he eventually delivered? See all of the common denominators in these stories. Now we need to go to the place where the time of Jacob's trouble is actually named with that name. See, Daniel 12 verse 1 speaks about a time of trouble. And uh, in um, Genesis chapter 32... It's not called the time of Jacob's trouble. But there is a reference in Scripture where that expression is used, the time of Jacob's trouble. And that is found in Jeremiah chapter 30. So go with me to Jeremiah 30, and we'll read verse 5 through verse 9. Jeremiah 30, verse 5 through verse 9. And let me, before we read the passage, let me just mention the context of Jeremiah 30. The faithful remnant in this passage is Israel. The enemy of Israel that has taken them captive is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. The time of trouble that Israel went through is the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And of course the delay would be during those 70 years that they spent captive. Was the faith of Israel severely tested during the 70 years? Absolutely. But at the end of the 70 years, did God give a decree through Cyrus for them to be delivered and to return to their land? That is the context. This passage is referring to Israel, God's faithful remnant. Let's read beginning at verse 5 through verse 9. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. In other words, the pain is so terrible that it's like a man who would be in labor, which is very painful, I'm told. Because <laughs> I have not experienced it. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turned pale? Is this severe anguish that Israel is going through? Absolutely, the anguish of Nebuchadnezzar coming and taking them captive. They're captive in Babylon for 70 years. They're mistreated there. Verse 7, alas, for that day is great. That's the reason why it, the time of trouble is called a great time of trouble, such as never has been seen. For that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of what? Ah, there's the specific expression. The time of Jacob's trouble. But now notice, but he shall be what? What would be a synonym of saved? He shall be delivered out of it. Verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck. In other words, the enemy. I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. In other words, you won't be captive anymore. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king 
who is Jesus, by the way, whom I will raise up for them. Are you catching the picture? So let me ask you, is there a remnant here? Yes, the remnant is Israel. Is there an enemy of the remnant? Yes, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. Is there a time of trouble for God's people? Severe. Oh, it's painful, like a woman in labor. Does God delay to deliver them? Seventy whole years in captivity. Their faith is severely tested during this period. But in the end, after 70 years, through Cyrus, God gives a decree to deliver his people from bondage so they can go back to their land and reestablish their religion and reestablish their system. By the way, in the end time, is Babylon going to be an enemy of God's people again? Yeah, it's not going to be literal Babylon, it's going to be spiritual Babylon. Are God's people going to be placed in a very difficult situation again, called the time of Jacob's trouble? Is it going to be a time of anguish and terrible pain? You better believe it is. Is God going to delay to deliver his people? Oh, yes. Is the faith of God's people going to be severely tested? Yes, that's why we need to develop faith now. At that time, you know, don't think you're going to say, oh, this is a severe crisis. I need to develop faith. No, too late. And will God's people be delivered? We saw it in Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, your people will be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. All of these pictures of what happens when probation closes during the time of trouble and the deliverance, all of them have the same common denominators. The good news is that there's going to be a glorious deliverance of God's people. The difficult news is what's going to happen immediately before that, the time of trouble. But if we keep in mind that there's going to be a glorious deliverance, it'll make it a lot more bearable to go through the delay. But we have to know our God. We have to abide in Christ now, and we have to be assured of His presence now if we're going to go through that period victoriously. We want to look at one more example, and then I'm going to just give you maybe five minutes for you to ask questions or make comments if, if you wish. The next scenario that I want to present is the one that we find in Matthew 24. And I'll go through this quickly. Um, it speaks there about the setting up of the abomination of desolation. What is the abomination of desolation in the end time? The abomination of desolation in the end time is when the papacy and apostate Protestantism impose a Sunday law. And whoever does not comply will be persecuted. Right? That's the context. Ellen White has some clear statements on this. And by the way, if you compare with, I don't have time now to do this. I have a series on Matthew 24, 14, uh, 14 hours of material on Matthew 24. And I dedicate two or three of those just to the abomination of desolation. What happened in history? So you have to understand what happened with the destruction of, of Jerusalem. That foreshadows what's going to happen at the end of time. And in the destruction of Jerusalem, the abomination of desolation in the destruction of Jerusalem was when the Roman Romans uh, uh, and their armies brought their standards and they put them in the ground outside the city. The standards had an eagle with a golden wreath around represent the orb of the sun, and they rendered worship to their, their, their sun god standards. Well, at the end of time, Ellen White says it's not the sun anymore, it's the day of the sun. So, so when, when, when Sunday is imposed as the day of worship, God's people are going to go through this severe time of anguish and trouble. It's called the Great Tribulation. Notice Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. God's people are going to have to flee, right? It says in Matthew 24, it says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. During that time, we're going to experience the same thing as Job. The best description of the time of trouble we're going to find in our study tomorrow is the story of Job. There you have all of the elements. Do you have a faithful remnant in the story of Job? Who is the remnant? Job. Dumb question. Does Job have an enemy? 
Who? Satan. Satan. Does he go through a severe time of anguish and trouble? Or is crying out to God? You better believe it. Does God, is his faith tested? To the utmost. Does God deliver him immediately? No. You have to wait from chapter 3 to chapter 38 for God to deliver him. But is he finally delivered and rewarded? Yes, he is. See, the good news is that after the storm comes the peace. But we have to prepare a character to go through the storm so that we can experience the peace. And that means abiding in Christ now. Not tomorrow. Not procrastinating. We have to build up faith now. And we need to be thankful for trials, folks. We need to praise the Lord when we have trials. Because, because our faith is strengthened when we successfully go through a trial. Don't complain when things happen in your life which appear to be bad. Say, I'm hanging in there. And I'll come out on the other side stronger than I was before. The Apostle Paul said, we rejoice in tribulation. Oh, come on. What was he, a masochist? No. He knew that, that trials strengthen our faith. They're not meant to break us. They're meant to make us. If we could just remember that. So it says, for then there will be great tribulation such as it has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor sure ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Who is the remnant at the end of time? The elect. Will they have enemies? Who? Will they have enemies? Yes. Will God's people go through a severe time of trouble? It says so here. Tribulations such as the world has never seen. Will the faith of God's people be severely tested? Read the chapter on the time of trouble in great controversy. Absolutely. Will God deliver them immediately? No. Read that chapter in great controversy. It's powerful. You know what Satan is going to try and convince, tell God's people? He's going to say, your sins are so great that God could not forgive those sins. Do we have to have the assurance of the forgiveness of sin? Yes, like, you know, Jacob, he couldn't forgive himself. Well, we need to reach the point where we have the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. And we can have the forgiveness, the, the, the security of forgiveness. Last I knew, there's a verse in the Bible that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can take it to the bank. Believe it because he says so, not because you feel it. People depend too much on feeling these days. Oh, yeah, I, just, I don't feel forgiven. Feelings have nothing to do with it. The devil is going to try to convince God's people during the time of trouble, hey, your sins were so great, you actually think God's going to forgive those sins. Come on, be real. The whole purpose is to shake the faith of God's people. But the faithful of God will not fail. Now, is there going to be a deliverance of God's people at the end of the time of trouble? Let's read our last text, Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. By the way, one of the presentations I'm going to make here is, uh, is um, on the parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 18, where it speaks about the persistent widow that kept on coming and coming and coming to the judge. That is the clearest story in the Bible on everything that we're talking about here. It says in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So this is going to happen after the tribulation, after God's people go through the severe time of trouble, after the delay, it says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And here comes the beautiful news. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his what? His elect. Did the elect go through the time of trouble? You have those days aren't shortened. The very elect would be deceived, the Bible says. And so it says, he will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. So God's people will be delivered. 
So in all of these pictures, what we need to focus on is the deliverance. You know, after the storm comes the calm. After the struggle comes the victory. But we need to develop that unbreakable and unshakable faith in Christ now. We need to learn to abide in Christ by studying his word, by having a deep life of prayer, by, uh, by facing crises in our lives and not getting discouraged, but going through them successfully through the grace and through the power of God. It's now that that kind of character must be developed because in the time of trouble, it's going to be too late. It'll be like the five foolish virgins. They come and they say, let us in, let us in. No, too late. The wedding has taken place. The groom has come. He's married his kingdom. Probation is closed. Too late. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.